Well, I'm going to say good morning, and I'd like you to say good morning back like you're awake and you're happy to be here in God's presence, in God's church, and ready to hear God's word. You ready? Good morning. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, if you forgot your Bible or um, have an iBible, you can flip there, but there's a red Bible located probably right underneath you or in front of you, and we're on page 1506, Matthew chapter 7, 1506. I hope you're enjoying your summer. Uh, I know it's been busy here around the church. We've had a lot of things going on between VBS and Camp Out. We're just now cleaning up all the red stains on our carpet, praise the Lord. Um, last Sunday and this morning, uh, we share a meal together, which is awesome. And I just want to say that uh, today is my very first experience with a potluck. Thank you. And I work here, so I'm invited. Uh, and I can't wait. I've been, I've been talking this thing up. Oh, I've invited so many people in the community this week. I'm like, guys, the church eats meals together. This is terrific. And I'm just excited. I just want to say that. Um, God's word and then bacon. Or I hope somebody brought some fried okra today. Um, and I hope you'll, you'll uh, come next week to On the Lawn. So that's kind of a shared meal, live music, ice cream, games, all sorts of fun. And that's next Sunday. And that's not following the service. It's in the evening. Uh, so you get to go home and take your nap. And then uh, make sure you get hydrated. It is July in Oklahoma, but come back that evening for dinner. And I do want you to know, uh, just so you can be well prepared and stretched, physically stretched this week, there will be kickball. Yes, fun kickball, family fun kickball, but everything fun's competitive, amen? And so it'll be, and that's like what the team decided to delegate to me. I get to preach next Sunday morning and then I get to run kickball. And I can't wait, it's gonna be a great day. Um, I've got a kickball and big league bubblegum chew and sunflower seeds. So we've got everything we need for a great kickball experience. On a serious note, uh, about 200 of you that we know of committed to reading the New Testament this summer as a church family. So a high five to all of you who started on Memorial Day weekend as this is your final week. Uh, in the reading plan, and since it is God's word, you can just start over again next week, okay? Um, we're on week eight out of 10 in our study on the parables of Jesus, uh, and if you missed any of those, I would encourage you to go to our podcast and catch up. A few weeks ago, my wife and family and I were driving back from vacation, and, and she had Wopsle's sermon going in her ears, and she scared me half to death. She said, Amen! that's good, you know, and I'm like, what is? Um, but really, go listen to the podcast and catch up with all of these sermons on different parables, different teachings of Jesus. So as a brief reminder of a definition I shared uh, in this series opener, author Klein Snodgrass defines a parable as follows. Listen to this definition. A parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. That's what Jesus 
was up to as he taught through parables, uh, representing roughly a third of his teachings in the Synoptic Gospels. And he primarily used them, and I think you've heard this throughout this series, to teach and illustrate and explain God's kingdom, God's character, and God's expectation on you and I. And so these are pictures and teachings on God's kingdom, his character, and what are his expectations for those who claim to be uh, followers. Many of you are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That's Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Um, So let me remind you the warm and inviting tone in which Jesus began his preaching. Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is near. So you come into Redeemer next week, and I walk up, and I begin my sermon. Repent! It's warm and inviting, right? That's how Jesus begins. You've got to turn your ways in order to hear what I'm going to say. If you can't turn from your ways, this isn't going to mean much to you. For the kingdom of heaven is near a conviction that the restoration of God's reign over all is beginning in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is preaching, and we see him calling his disciples, and we see him healing the sick, and we see large crowds begin to follow and press into him each time he began to teach. In Matthew chapter 5, Uh, Verses 1 through 2, we see the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, he sat down. This is a long sermon. I was going to read it to you today, but the okra would be cold. So he sits down on the mountainside. His disciples came to him, so his, his closest disciples are listening, but everybody else is listening in and listening intently, and he began to teach them. As he begins to teach them, Jesus delivers uh, the powerful Beatitudes, which you might be familiar with, a pronouncement of blessing over the Christ follower and reversal, complete reversal of everything you think to be true and right in God's kingdom, it's typically a little different than the world. And so this idea of reversal, take verse 4, for example, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, no one would ever presume that people in the midst of intense grief could be blessed, could be called blessed, or could be comforted. We logically think Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, miserable are those who mourn, for they find no relief in their time of distress. I mean, that's kind of how we think, right? How am I ever going to get through this situation or this trial? This is the reversal that we see when Jesus opens its mouth, his mouth. It's different. It's a different countercultural message. And God's reign becomes a reality. And those who have, have experienced sorrow in their lives can actually be comforted. The Beatitudes. And then we see emphasis on the covenant identity of Christ's followers and the missional purpose that we have 
uh, in, in our faith, and that's Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, but you're going you're gonna to shine, and everybody out there is going to see your good deeds. And when they see your good deeds, if they're done in right motives, they're not going to talk about you. They're going to glorify my Father who's in heaven. And that's our identity. That's our missional purpose as Christ followers. And then we get into the meat of the sermon, which is all instructions, the handrails for our Christian lives. And that's 5, verse 17, to chapter 7, verse 23. And we're given instructions from Jesus on on how to live. And I'm going to briefly summarize the Sermon on the Mount. Cliff notes here, participation in the kingdom requires complete loyalty to Jesus and his teachings. You know, when I think of Bedlam, and I know we've got OU and OSU and Tulsa, and I think the Scruggs, some small school in Arkansas, but listen, you know, it's like in, in, in our conference, it's really cute when an OU fan, you know, we've done what we could do with our season, but in order for the conference to look good, we'll cheer for OSU. You hear people say that? Like, I want them to win because it's against an SEC team or, or it just makes, us, it makes our win against OSU look better, right? And every once in a while, it's total opposite, but every once in a while. But it, it's really cute when we talk like that. You know, like I'm going to cheer for our, our opponent just for this. You can't do that with the kingdom of God. You absolutely can't. I'm talking complete loyalty. Like I'm for the kingdom of God, but you know, I'll flirt over here a little bit with this and this truth and this message. It is complete loyalty to Jesus and his teaching. Expectations on us, expectations on you are prayer and fasting and giving to those in need. And this is never to be done for your attention and your honor. This should be applied in your life to praise God. So give in secret and pray in secret. Fast in secret. Love everyone. Loving your enemies is an ultimate expression of obedience. We're expected to possess a longing for God's kingdom. And so you're here on earth, and and as a Christ follower, you just don't really feel home. That's what that means. You're just not a native citizen of, of this place. But there's a kingdom that awaits you, and we long for his kingdom not only in our, our eternity, but here on earth, guys. It's not about uh, the kingdom of God as, as some magical place that we go after we die. God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Allegiance must be given to God rather than possessions or money. Seeking God's kingdom must be our highest priority. Trusting God displaces our worry about any of our daily needs. We are to engage in discernment and self-awareness. Who am I? What what are my thoughts and motives? Rather than judging others, your prayer is effective. Your prayer is effective. I've seen a miracle and I shared this with Sunday school earlier. I've seen a miracle uh, in, in the last 10 days where my uncle was on life support and we were given every bad message about the possibilities of him living. And he was walking down the halls of the hospital the other day. 
We're to treat others the way we desire to be treated. We're to guard our hearts and minds against false doctrine. And our lives should be a constant representation of what Jesus says as his teachings. At the very end of the sermon, you see the crowds are like, wow. And it says that they had never heard anybody teach like this with that kind of authority. So his teachings are authoritative. These, this is the cliff notes of the Sermon on the Mount, and these are high expectations, aren't they? And so when you hear Jesus' sermon, chapter 5, verse 17 to 723, you don't hear a list of areas in which you're falling short, like crud. I, I'm not, I, I probably score a B plus there, C minus there, don't want to know my grade there. It's not about seeing the Sermon on the Mount and seeing a list of things that we're not doing uh, correctly or ways that we fall short. Instead, we read his word and we, we hear an invitation every single morning to wake up and ask the Holy Spirit to come into our midst, into our world and guide us and mold us so that we can live out what God's word says. You're not going to do it in your own strength. If you wake up in the morning, you want to be Christ-like, but you never talk to him, good luck. You've got to rely on him. You've got to lean on him. You've got to press into his spirit. It's like today, I may not fully arrive on every instruction in the Sermon on the Mount, but today I want to have a little bit more Christ-likeness in my life than I did yesterday, and I want to have a little more tomorrow than I do today. It's a journey. You don't just arrive overnight. Uh, John Stott describes this sermon this way. The Sermon on the Mount is the most complete description anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, network of relationships, all of which are totally at variance with those in the non-Christian world. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but a life lived out under the divine rule. Which brings us to the final statement that Jesus makes in his sermon, his closing remarks of the Sermon on the Mount and the parable that we look at together now. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, okay, let's stop there. If you see therefore in Scripture, you focus on what came before it. Therefore this, so what? So we look at the paragraph before the therefore, verses 21 uh, through 24, or 23, excuse me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. Jesus makes us fully aware right here of the danger of having merely a verbal profession of faith. Talking the talk. He has distaste for those who are relying on what they say about Jesus for their salvation. Not every one of you who says to me, and on that day many will say to me, 
Jesus insists, our final destiny will be settled neither by what we're saying to him or about him today, but by whether or not we actually do what we say, whether or not we are who we say we are, and the warning is clear. He doesn't want just a verbal profession of faith. It's got to transition into a moral faith. We have to not just talk like a Christian, but we have to live like a Christian. It's about our life and not our lips. We can talk the talk all day long, but are we walking? He's not interested in lip service, claiming loyalty, but lacking obedience. He cannot be fooled. Just like I can't fool you right now by claiming that I am, in fact, despite what you've heard, the starting point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. I am. I come up here and preach some Sundays, but I actually play for, I'm on their roster. I'm the point guard. You're not fooled, are you? I mean, you all know that I don't play in the NBA. If you think that's a possibility for me, I appreciate your support, but I can't fool you right now. You can't fool Jesus with your words. Back to the parable, verse 24. Therefore, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, hears and does, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. It was an F4 tornado. It beat on the house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The contrast here in the previous paragraph, before the therefore, we see between saying and doing. And now Jesus moves into hearing and doing. So he's concentrating on what are you saying and what are you hearing and then what are you doing. And the common feature between both of these characters in this parable is that they both hear. They're both on the hook. They've, they've both heard uh, Jesus' words. Wise man builds his house on the rock. He knew that Jesus' words were not suggestions to improve his life. Jesus' words were his foundation. Storms came, river, rain, flood, wind. Nothing moves this house. It was fixed and secure on the rock, on the foundation. The foolish man, house is on the sand. He heard Jesus speak, never worked Jesus's instructions into his life, into the person that he was. And he built his home with no foundation. Storms came, the rain, the river, the winds, the flood. It collapsed like a house of cards, a total loss total devastation. And you know what's funny? From the outside, both of these houses could look just the same. You, you go out there and you see the house on the rock and you see the house on the sand and they can be built 
exactly the same. What's different is what's hidden. It's what's underneath. It's the foundation. Are the words of Christ the foundation of our lives? And in this case, friends, I'm going to tell you, this, this makes James make so much more sense when he says, when you endure various trials, consider it pure joy, because when you go through those trials, the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and something is, is deposited into your life that you may have lacked, you're strengthened, you're matured. In this scenario, guys, only a storm could reveal the truth. How many of y'all are going through storms in your lives right now? Only a storm could reveal the truth. Life delivers these trials and, and proves what foundation you have. What is your foundation? Jesus said, if you hear these words of mine and you do them. So it's not just about hearing him. It's not just about talking about him. It's doing what you hear. To translate, do what you're told. Anybody in here with small children or grandchildren and you've said that recently? Do what you're told. This is not a conversation. I have told you what to do and go and do it. Wash your hands. Brush your teeth. Why do I have to tell you this every night? Watch out for cars. Slow down. Do your homework. That's too much TV. Put on your seatbelt. And all these instructions are good. They really are, but occasionally or hourly, depending on your little ones, they simply stop listening. And they start mistaking instructions for suggestions. Recently, we were leaving the house for dinner, and I said to Macy, our five-year-old, you need to go upstairs and put on some shoes. Okay. And she went upstairs, and a few minutes later, we're in the van. We're a mini, proud minivan family. The door's even open, but with a remote. It's really awesome. And we're off to dinner, and we get to the parking lot, and we get out, and I look over, and my little Macy's walking into the restaurant barefoot. And this is kind of how our dialogue went. Macy, where are your shoes? <laughs> what shoes? Exactly why I'm asking. Why are you not wearing shoes? Well, I don't know. Well, I sent you upstairs to get shoes. You did? Macy, you went upstairs. I watched you walk upstairs. I did, Daddy. You're not wearing shoes. No. Why not? I did get this toy. <laughs> and we're equally guilty with God's word. We know what it says. We read it, we talk about it, we study it. But we forget it or we get lazy or distracted or we get caught up <clears throat> in the desires of our flesh or we choose the other path, we get off track. It's no different. 
I struggle with it all the time. I know what God's word says, but it's not just about talking about it. It's not just about hearing it. It's about putting it into action in our lives. So verbal profession is good. Intellectual knowledge is essential, but neither are substitutes for our obedience. We can speak uh, Christianese all day long. We can say acceptable, traditional, enthusiastic things about Jesus. We can hear his words and listen to podcasts and study scripture and ponder God's word and memorize God's word until our brains are full and stuffed. But the test that Jesus hands out in this specific sermon is whether or not we do what we say and do what we know. We say it, we know it, are we doing it? This is not to be confused, and let me be very clear, with a salvation message. Good deeds are no match. Go ahead and say that in agreement, no match. Good deeds are no match for grace through faith. 1 John 1.6 tells us that verbal profession can't save you, you need grace. James 1.22 tells us that hearing and knowing can't save you, you need grace. Salvation is not the result of works, period. You will never earn or work or deserve right relationship with God. It is only through grace and the blood of Jesus Christ. But our lives should be evidence of our salvation. And so this is a little bit of a kick in the tail right now And a little bit of a summary for you, if you hear the gospel and you profess faith in Christ, so you hear and you say, you will will undoubtedly express your faith through obedience and action. You will. And so hearing and saying, it's got to transition into doing. So I was thinking this week as I read this passage over and over and over again, how dangerous the word of God is. It's complicated. And this church is a dangerous family to join because as a result, we are all given the responsibility of ensuring that what we say and what we know is to translate, is translated into what we do in our lives. And it comes down to a choice. And you know what? The choice is unavoidable. You have to make a choice. There, there are two ways. There's the wide and the narrow. One leads to life and the other leads to destruction. There's only two houses. There's the one on the rock and it does not fall. There's the one on the sand that is completely destroyed. So if you would bow your heads for a moment, I'm gonna ask you a question and then I'm gonna be quiet for a few moments and let you think and reflect and then I'll pray for us. On which foundation do you choose to build? Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the way that it pushes us and nudges us, the way that it convicts us and refines us and better equips us to go out and live as the Christ followers that we are. Lord, you see all things and you can't be fooled and so each of us falls short of your glory. The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 
prior to that eternal life, Lord, we pray for your kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. That we wouldn't have to wait. And we understand part of that, Lord, is us living out our faith through action, through obedience. And Lord, we thank you for your grace when we fall short. I pray that you would pour out that grace abundantly on us today. And I also pray that you would light a fire underneath us that when we go from this place today, we would be convinced that what we say and what we know about you has to translate into what we do, how we live, who we are, what we look like to the world around us. Lord, there's, there's lost people in our midst and in our community each and every day that look to our Christian character and they see good deeds. And Father, you tell us the result is that they will glorify you in heaven. And so raise that mantle in each of our hearts today, that when we go, we would go fervently as the body of Christ. And that we would choose to build on the rock, on your words, your truths, your principles. And we ask for your help each and every moment. In Christ's name, amen.